0: What's going on, my digital compadres? Welcome to Feasting with Founders. I am here with Theo. I don't even know your last name, man. What's your? It's Marad. Theo Marad. Yeah. Pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. We're actually um, in my home. Mm -hmm. You're the traveling um, podcaster. Exactly. Filming live (laughs) from the apartment
0: of everybody else's spot because I don't have my studio set up yet. Um. Yeah. So damn, and it's like. Sometimes when you have that connection, it's just like real easy to start the conversation before you jump in. And now I'm like halfway between the conversation we were just having, yeah. and where I was going to take us. Right. Um, so maybe let's just start off with talking about uh, kind of what we were just discussing as far as sourcing, because I think that's one of the unique things. Well, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um,
1: the brand, so we can get a sense of where you're coming from and what you do? Yeah. So I'm Theo. Um, I'm the- co-founder of Theo's Plant-Based. We're making what I would call real plant-based food from organic vegetables. So um, the point of our products is to start with a high-quality agricultural input, um, a vegetable that's organically grown, and how few steps can we take from the raw product to something new without compromising the integrity of the flavor and nutrition of the vegetable itself.
0: Mm. Without compromising the flavor and integrity of the vegetable itself.
1: So our first product, we have a, a beet jerky. It's the first of its kind, Mm -hmm. um, consistent with, with that thesis of what the brand's doing. You know, we're taking beets at harvest. We're working with an organic regenerative farm, actually a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And, um, Right at harvest, the uh, the beets are are pulled from the ground. The greens and stems go right back into the ground for organic compost. The rest of the beet, the top, bottom, and peel, all gets used. They get sliced and marinated, and then dried at a low temperature. Which mm. you know, low temperature drying actually doesn't alter nutrition. Mm-hmm. So all the nutrition that's in the beet is still in there. They get dried, tossed in spices, and put in a compostable package. Mm-hmm. So it's. Um, a zero waste upcycled product you know we're leaving the peel on most um beet processing at scale only about 60% of the weight of the beet gets used hmm. uh we're using 96% damn okay so you think about i mean we're really just getting into the market and getting going but we've already saved over 5 tons of food waste that hmm. would um i mean in best case scenario would be composted but nobody's doing that <laughs> mm-hmm. um you know in mass production mm-hmm. so you know this this product certainly emulates what we're aiming to do and mm. the whole point of this brand is like let's look at the plant-based diet and look at the options that are out there and make something that i would say is true to the name that goes back to the whole point of what plant-based eating is supposed to be. And I would like to think of myself more in the business of like making real food rather Mm. than just, I would say, boxing us into being Mm -hmm. plant-based. I'd say we're equally an organic and natural foods brand as much as we are a plant-based brand. Mm -hmm. And, um, more than anything, what I want is people to eat more real food and be able to support organic biodynamic agriculture
0: yeah I love that and it's uh that's more real food right because it's like and this was my first experience so I I met you through uh Chicagoland food and beverage event you're showing your beet jerky I had never heard of beet jerky before I think that's probably true of a lot of people you talk to Um, the closest I had heard was like mushroom jerky Uh and it's always marketed as a beef alternative. It's like, we're figuring out how to recreate beef jerky, but with this thing. Right. And it sounds like that's not really what you're going for. That happens to be what
1: the market talks about a
0: lot. And you're trying to get to something deeper than that.
1: Exactly. I think, um, you know, if the way you interpret beet jerky is that, oh, it's kind of like meat and some people do that. And part of the goal of the way we dehydrate it is to have a satiating jerky like texture, but exactly what you're saying. I don't think what we should be striving for is to create these one-to-one meat alternatives that are Mm -hmm. taste, smell, texture, nutrition, plan, all, you know, appearance, um, behaving and and looking like meat. I think, um, Mm. that ultimately leads to way too much manipulation, Mm. uh, The point of eating plant-based food should be eating plants, not eating a product that, because there's the absence of animals in it, it's Mm plant-based. I don't think that's really fair to consumers, to be Mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. You know, for their health or for you know what they are supporting. Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right. It's like we're not trying to be meat. I don't want to be considered you know some people might shop for this and be like this is an alternative to meat mm-hmm. but the idea that we're supposed to be standing up next to beef jerky or you know meat in general yeah. especially with future products is just i think it boxes you in and it's it's yeah it's not looking ahead enough
0: yeah and it's um when when you i like this from a marketing and branding perspective because you're stepping outside of this concept of like how do we make more people, how do we cut down on meat consumption? And it's more like, what is real food? Because real food goes beyond even like, there are a right. bunch of meats we can eat that aren't really real food. Right. Like, just because they are come from organic matter doesn't make it real food. And especially exactly. the way we treat a lot of livestock, right. it's just like, what are you actually putting into your body is a right.
1: much bigger question to answer than how do we get more people off meat? Right. And I mean, I think like, you know, I can see if you look in isolation at the value of like, you know, these beyond burgers or things like that. It's like, Mm -hmm. I can see the value in like, okay, well, a lot of consumers are willing to try something like this that maybe they wouldn't, Mm -hmm. um, they're more comfortable with it. Um, Mm -hmm. but I think the idea, this blanketed idea that we should take, be supporting and promoting any product that doesn't have animals in it Mm -hmm. is, is, um, and then comparing it in isolation to factory farm meat. It's like, well, okay, you're, you're, you're comparing a terribly shitty system of factory farming to a still terrible, but just less shitty system, you know, Mm -hmm. of like, let's just mass produce shitty, you know, processed food and get everybody to eat it. And let's bring Mm -hmm. it to a price point where people can afford it. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, let's greenwash it and pretend it's healthy. And let's Mm -hmm. get a lot of people eating it and thinking that plant-based is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. It's like some plant-based is good for everyone. I think you know if you look back to to the plant-based diet and eating vegan it used to be this cool thing that was about eating real food making your own food there was an emphasis on local food mm. eating seasonally what happened to all of that mm-hmm. well like any trend that really grows a significant population the marketplace sees it and there's an opportunity mm-hmm. and there's a lot of really smart people that are able to, to put their brains towards figuring out efficient and low cost ways to make things quickly, you know, Mm -hmm. and make a lot of them. And, uh, and then what are the options at the store? Well, it's no longer like, let's spend most of our time in produce and in the dried, you know, buying legumes and things like that. It's Mm -hmm. now let's wheel the cart over next to the meat section and find all these products that are, um, you know fake meat Mm -hmm. so mock meat yeah yeah so you know and i it's funny because i've gotten uh i've gotten flack for it already Mm -hmm. um for taking a stance which i think is pretty hard to to be against which is just telling people like let's eat organic real food you know it's so Mm -hmm. simple like Mm -hmm. i even tell people with my product i'll be demoing at whole foods i'm like I would rather you just go buy the beets and Mm -hmm. I'll come back over here. You can get your phone out and I'll give you instructions on what to do with them. Mm -hmm. And you can buy the beets and you can cook them at home Mm -hmm. and that's what you should be doing. in fact, you can buy a lot of beets, you know, Mm. so. Do that if you're not going to, okay, well, here's something convenient that doesn't compromise nutrition and has some integrity to it. So Mm. I would love to share this with you, but I would rather you, you know, Go as close to the source as possible. Yeah. Um, And I want to do something with, with, um, our marketing and our, um, incentivizing consumers by finding a way that people can prove that they've supported local agriculture and give them like big discounts and incentives, Mm. you know, to be able to purchase our stuff. Cause that's, what's most important. I mean, I could talk forever about just why that's where everybody should be putting their money and nowhere else. So yeah you know?
0: Yeah. And, uh, that raises an interesting question for me as far as, um, scalability, like how do you think about these challenges at scale? Or are you really just focused on trying to do what you can with what you have now? Right. Because like that ethos of 96% usage and, and trying to do everything regenerative, organic, keeping it as true as possible to natural food processes a lot of people argue that doesn't work when you go past a certain size or like the, the opportunity just isn't there and you're going to have to cut corners. So right. like, how do you think about what this looks like as it grows up?
1: Right. Well, I think like, you know, there's certainly barriers and challenges with the less things are manipulated. There's more risks involved because, you know, it's closer to being like a raw, real product. There's not bunch Mm. of preservatives in it. It's not, you know, extruded and mixed with fillers that are more shelf stable, things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, for a lot of companies, kind of a cop-out answer of like, Mm. well, you know, we had to do this to make it work. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, maybe. (laughs) Um, I'd like to see all the options you really weighed out. Mm. I think something cool though, is like when you're working with just these organic inputs, it's like, I can do contract direct trade deals with farms all over the country Mm. and certainly a barrier with organic, but especially with a product that's, you know, outside of like some spices and stuff, like it's just beets. Mm -hmm. is they're seasonally grown. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's going to have to be working with farms in different parts of the country with different climates to get them year round. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a challenge. And then the organic supply chain specifically is even harder and the, you know, obviously it's more expensive and the margins make it difficult to like compete at a price point that, you know, is, is, uh, competitive. And right now we're premiumly priced, but I think consumers seem happy to, to pay for it. Um, Mm. and I think especially we're still working on our messaging, but there's just no bullshit to it. So it's like if we can, you know, concisely just explain like what this is beyond the name, you know, it's like, I think that resonates with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think at scale, it's interesting. Most drying for this product specifically, most drying, um, dried produce products are produced out of this country. Um, consistent with that, you know, most produce is, is coming from different countries. Like a lot of drying operations have, uh, set up close to their sources. Sure. So like mangoes in Mexico, for example, or Mm -hmm. pineapple, like Mexico does a ton of drying. Um, I mean, lots of other countries do, there's a lot of drying going on in India and Mm. other parts of Asia, Mm. um, which is also another challenge for us right now, because there's a lot of hand labor involved in what we're making. Mm -hmm. And we're competing with, if you look at products in the grocery store, um, dried, you know, vegetable fruit products, most of them are produced at costs that aren't based on like the U S economy, you know? yeah. yeah, So, you know, what somebody's making, you know, a team of laborers here, they're making 18 something, maybe bucks a day or an hour Mm -hmm. hand packing and making stuff like they're Companies paying you know a 20th of that in other countries mm. so you know you think yeah. about how that goes in the cost of goods yeah i don't really to be honest i don't like fully understand like the ethics of like international production and stuff like that and definitely yeah. would want to learn more about it before ever engaging with it but i think there's potential for that someday yeah you I know yeah. If, if things are right right but i'm never i'm never gonna consistent with making a product you know i've already been advised by people to like oh you should put this and this and this in it you know mm. a preservative or something to add protein to it mm-hmm. and it's the same answer every time it's like fuck that i'd rather not do this mm-hmm. you know like i'd seriously rather stop today yeah then do that yeah and the same thing with the you know the ethics <laughs> of the business i mean people in the food industry i have been working in food since i was 15 years old mm. and whether you're at a you know a small mom and pop restaurant working in fine dining, working on a farm, working in a cafe, people are getting fucked over everywhere, you know, and that happens in food production too. So like, I'm not going to support anything that's not giving people dignity, you know, Mm. and not giving people reasonable pay. And if that means that we have to be premiumly priced and that it, it, it puts barriers on what we're able to do again, I'd rather fail doing the right thing. Yeah. So,
0: Yeah. And I get the sense your background in kind of being trained in a farm to table movement is informing a lot of this, right? Because I think there are plenty of founders who don't necessarily come from a culinary background or they weren't exposed to how much you can do with local regenerative. So they just assume when an advisor says, Hey, You can just outsource this to a factory; they'll get you this much at this price point, and we'll sell it here. They're just like, "Yeah, sounds great. This is the product." But it sounds like kind of your background as a chef and studying under people that have done this at a high level. Right. You're connecting the dots, and your network, your network of concepts in your brain is a little bit broader as to like we can
1: do more. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I was. It's a big benefit because I, you know, like when I was cooking at Blue Hill in New York, I got exposed to like every vegetable you can think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and funny enough, applying the snacks, it's like most of the time I was there, I was working on the canopy station, which is like hors d'oeuvres. Like it's the, mm-hmm. the first many bites of your meal, which are usually one or two bites Yeah, and it's mostly vegetables. And, um, a big learning curve of working at that restaurant is like I mean, most fine dining restaurants, the menu changes a lot, but there, the mm. menu changes all the time. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you're just starting to really understand the nuances of something and then it changes up on you. It's like yeah. the, you know, the rug gets pulled from underneath you. Yeah. Um, but I think what, what's so cool about what Dan Barber's doing over there, he's the chef there is like, mm-hmm. he does all these plays and I mean, this is direct influence on what I'm doing. He does all these plays with vegetables on like being something else. So like, Mm. you know, whether that's like fried, fried mushrooms or doing like, um, carrot steaks, you know, Mm -hmm. or, um, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things like that, you know, different plays on beet tartare, you know, things like that. It's like, it's very consistent with and influential for what I'm working on. And, and why I was able to pull it off is because he's not trying to, it's a play on, on a dish, but he's not, again, he's not trying to manipulate something away from what it really is. Yeah. Um, so I think when you're, when I don't, I don't have training as being a product developer, right? Everything I know about food science has been, you know, specific to learning about, you know, producing the product I'm making. I'm not a scientist. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, I'm a chef and I've worked with my hands in the trenches for a long time and I know how to make food with things you can buy and make food with your hands, Mm -hmm. things that you could make at home, Mm -hmm. you know, that people make. And I think that opens up a whole world of ideas and concepts and just a way of viewing the food itself that like people that really study like, you know, the, the science of it deeply and have a, a more kind of, let's, you know, alteration of, of inputs mind, which I'm is, has its benefits. I'm not shitting on all of you. Trust me. Um, (laughs) I mean, I have an advisor an innovation advisor, um, Mm -hmm. who helps me kind of take concepts and like, make sure they're safe and things like that. And like, you know, I'd be screwed without Linda Baggio. So, um, but, uh, you know, I, it just, it keeps your mind open. You're not thinking of things in terms of, okay, well, what's the trend right now? You know, like Mm. these products on the shelf and the plant-based set, they all have like 15 to 22 grams of protein per serving. It's like, how can we achieve that, you know, and meet the net weight and composition of our products? Like, no, I'm not thinking about things like that at all. It's like, no. Yeah. Designing to the label almost. Right. Right. And you look at a lot of innovation and it's like, the the direction that everybody else is walking, like all the cool stuff is the person that runs the other way, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, and you see that in music art, whatever. Yeah. So couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think it's been a benefit and it's frustrating to me. I've sat on panels in alternative protein. I've talked to lots of people at networking events. I've, you know, <sighs> LinkedIn, whatever. It's Mm. frustrating to me when I'm told by people that are business people that understand business way better than I do, but that are, that are telling me, you know, what the value of a product is supposed to be in the plant-based space or like Mm. what a product is supposed to be and, you know, where its value comes. And it's like, I'm not taking advice from people that have never worked with food, you know, (laughs) like I'm, I'm just not Mm. like, You, you went to business school, you know, that's awesome. And if I have questions about, you know, cost of goods models and, and business development, well, I'm sure, you know, Yeah. but don't tell me, you know, you've never been in the trenches. You don't know what that's like. Mm -mm. You've never, you know, grown something from seed to harvest, prepared it on a plate, you know, done that for hundreds of hours a week for years. You just, it's, it's absurd to me. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, I think I have a a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in that way. (laughs) It's like, say what you want. I'm not taking advice. Yeah. Um.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that's missing from a lot of the discourse because so many people that are able to get in front of the camera are the people that either already have the money, the business people, the marketers. Mm -hmm. It's rare we get to talk to the chef's the farmers, the people that are actually creating the food we're enjoying. It's the people that have figured out how to get it into enough mouths to turn a profit that tend to be the ones talking about it. Right. Um, And I was at
1: this panel, for example, like a month ago, this alternative proteins panel booth. Um, and I was, it was a privilege to be invited to sit on this panel. You know, there's people from, from big plant-based alternative protein companies there mm -hmm. that are, um, a lot, you know, more sophisticated than I am in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. it was uh, a pleasure to be invited. I think part of the reason they included me is because I was so different than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But most of the companies up there, you know, they're making the, the one-to-one alternative protein products, or they're working on some technology to bring lab, lab grown meat to scale or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, everybody's talking about their brand and the product and what they're working on. and. It was all fine. I mean, it's not really what I align with, but it was fine until towards the end of the conversation. It's like somebody in the crowd asked a question about nutrition and low income communities Mm. and um, how these options were going to fit in with that. And Mm. somebody, I'm not going to name the company from one of the big companies up there was saying, well, you know, our projections are that the price points of our products are going to bring, um, are going to go down and they're Mm going to be available to all consumers. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, you know, verbatim. So this way low income people can have access to, uh, nutritious food, you know, healthy Mm. food options. Mm. And I kind of just, you know, I had to speak up because mm-hmm. it was like, that's not okay. You know, it's like, let's give the people that are already being held down more processed shit. Mm-hmm. And you know what, let's use genius marketing to pretend that it's healthy and they're going to think it is, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's a privilege to know how to read food labels. It's a privilege to, mm-hmm. to, um, to understand nutrition and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, most consumers at the grocery store, even people that shop at Whole Foods, whatever, it's like you kind of buy what's in front of you and you take what's on the package as what it is. And yeah. it's, I, I, you know, I just had to, I had to, um, speak my mind a little bit cause it, it just, it just didn't add up in my head.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, the game of labels. Right. And like, I'm just thinking of, I got a, a tub of ice cream recently. I've been trying to do like no corn syrup, anything, just as much natural sugar as possible. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't paying attention. I just grabbed a tub of ice cream that was like all natural, uh, no high fructose corn syrup. It's like, great. And then once I got it home, it would just, the high fructose wasn't there. It was just corn syrup. And I'm just like, what the fuck are we actually doing? And how is this even legal?
1: Exactly. I I wonder that too. The more and more I've learned about food labeling, it's like, how is this allowed you know, how is this allowed? Yeah. it It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah. There's a fascinating his. Apparently, it used to be that they had to label the things that were not organic as non-organic. Yeah. And then eventually, somebody got the right politician to flip the law and just take that out. Like, margarine had to be labeled imitation butter, and then one day it didn't anymore. Right. And then, like, over time, you see more and more... You see something labeled as organic. And then if you even dig into the qualities of like what qualifies as organic legally, it's like sixty percent right. of the product, seventy percent, right. something like that. Right. It's
1: it's wild. And it's not, you know, none of this is to say that you can't have treats. I mean, I'm a, right a you know, a glutton. I love indulgent stuff. Yeah. I think it can't be a regular part of what you're eating unless you're like, you know, running twenty miles a day. But yeah. like, you know, I'm I'm not against people indulging in things. I'm not against having options in the grocery store that are unhealthy. That's fine. You know. The problem is when it's marketed to the masses and there's a movement behind it that's fueled and encouraging a level of ethics mm-hmm. that isn't what we should be striving for. I think mm-hmm. that's when things get problematic. Yeah. Um and then when when people that that, you know, don't have the privilege to understand things end up getting disproportionately affected by it, Mm. just like, you know, food options today. I mean, low income people, you know, often don't have many options in terms of what they can eat, living in food deserts, you know, high rates of obesity, diabetes, things like that. And that's all because of, you know, what's available, you know, and a lot of um, exploitation just like with Mm. cigarettes and alcohol and things like that. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, you know. Where, where does this passion come from? Were you into food your whole life? Did you grow up in a food family? Like, how does this become the thing that you're about? Um,
1: I, I think I got interested in. Food at a really young age because I have this memory. My, my mom's dad, my grandpa, he had mm. this big garden. He lived in northern Michigan on this mm. hill. He had this big garden, and his brother had a garden next to his, and his brother just grew grapes and made wine. And my grandpa grew all these vegetables, and he was able to retire pretty young, and he kind of obsessively studied cooking, mm. more from like a Eurocentric angle, but... You know, he has a big family. My mom has six or seven siblings. Sorry, Mm -hmm. mom, I can't remember. Uh, (laughs) And no, I remember being a kid and being in the, being um, in, and I don't have that many memories with him, but I remember being in his dark green Ford F-150 and it was stick shift because I remember his hand on the, Mm -hmm. on the, the shifter Mm -hmm. and going on this bumpy ride. And it was really significant to me because also I got to sit in the front seat, which, Mm. you know, I was like five years old, but I remember in the early morning sun, you know, you get that juxtaposition of the warm sun and the cold air and it's Mm kind of, there's dew on the grass. And I remember being picking zucchini and all these different vegetables with him. And then later that day, you know, going back and washing them. And then later that day, him making a big meal for people. And this is something that, happened pretty often in our family when I was young and I think there was something I saw in that, that goes beyond the, uh, you know, the, the tasty food you see it's romantic and it's kind of dramatic. What you see when people share and gather and, you know, Mm -hmm. being close to the earth and really in the season of what I think was August, you know, when Mm -hmm. everything is so abundant in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. um, And I think that kind of set a tone of like what food could be for a while Mm -hmm. um, and still does. And then when I, you know, both my parents worked full time when I was a kid. Yeah. And at the same time that I really started like watching Food Network and cooking shows and stuff when I was a little kid, it was like, oh, well, I'm going to make myself dinner, you Mm -hmm. know, and it started with like boiling noodles and like maruchan ramen and Mm -hmm. extended itself out. And then I Got my first job when I was 15. I started working and I worked at a cafe Mm. and I had gotten really into coffee. Um, Did that for a bit. And then um, I briefly worked at Domino's Pizza. (laughs) And then I got my first real restaurant job when Mm. I was 16 or 17. Mm. It was at a barbecue place Mm. in Ann Arbor. That's where I grew up. And um, you know, classic, like they started me off as a dishwasher. It was insane at the time because like minimum wage was like 7 25 and they were paying me like eleven mm. fifty an hour, and I got direct deposit every Friday, and I thought I was like fucking rich. That sounds nice, you know? <laughs> yeah.
0: 16. Um, Hell yeah, man.
1: Yeah, and um no, I mean, I think very quickly it was like I, I liked the whole food side of it, but then I got you know, in your face, exposed to the adrenaline and the intensity and the Mm. rawness of a kitchen. Mm. And I was hooked immediately, you know, and it started off with me busting my ass, scrubbing dishes. They didn't even have a dishwashing machine. So everything was done by hand. Mm. And I'd be back there, you know, for eight to 10 hours, just scrubbing dishes. And eventually they started letting me cook. Mm. And I worked there for a few years and then in college worked in I went to university of Michigan and and was Mm -hmm. cooking at several different restaurants throughout my time there, spent a little time in the food nonprofit space, Mm. um, and was just kind of in that, um, I briefly took a job in it when I was a student and I hated it and like was (laughs) in a cubicle. And though I was able to like do my homework while I was. Mm. while i was working i like very quickly recognized like i could never work like this Mm -hmm. ever Mm -hmm. you know i have adhd i can't sit still i'm shaking my fucking leg here sure and like i'm a tactile learner i'd like to Mm. you know engage with people yeah another thing i love about restaurant culture is like there's no there's not like this facade that you have to put on that you see in like the corporate world where it's like let's kind of take a lot of the individuality and, and human side of things out, yeah. you know, and yeah. in restaurants, it's like you do your job and anything goes, Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. like seriously, anything goes, <laughs> Yeah, you know? And like, sometimes yeah. that can be too much and can be a little harmful, but mm-hmm. you know, there's a level of realness to the people and authenticity that I appreciate so much that I admired so quickly. Yeah. that I felt comfortable in yeah, and kept me in it. And so towards the end of college, I was cooking at a vegan restaurant and side note, like I was studying psychology and community action, social change. Mm. I thought it was going to be a clinical th- therapist, mm-hmm. which I think still would be a really interesting job, but, um, yeah, you know, consistent with, you know, doing something experiential. It's like, sure. um, I saw, or I started working at this vegan restaurant when I was towards the end of college, it was called the lunchroom and it was a really cool place. The lunchroom was like, a um, equally a restaurant as it was almost like this community nonprofit organization, Mm -hmm. such an outlier in the restaurant space. Um, Mm -hmm. and I still to this day have never worked in a kitchen like it where, I mean, they were doing so much cool stuff. Uh I'll talk about the food but first I just want to talk about um Joel and Phyllis the owners are just the coolest people ever founders and they worked directly with um some halfway houses and like recovery facilities and prioritized people that were in recovery mm-hmm. that were or people that were like incarcerated that are tra- transitioning back into you know mm-hmm. society mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and created like a very safe, supportive space Mm. for people, you know, that have had, you know, drug abuse and addiction problems and other trauma and stuff, and also really prioritized and welcomed people from like all sorts of different backgrounds. Mm. Um, and it was a very like welcoming supportive environment. Yeah. And further, you know, they, they, they paid really well. They gave you like no questions asked, like, as much food as you wanted. Mm. Um they they gave their employees fitness stipends, you could earn paid time off, you know. It's like all this stuff they helped cover most of insurance and mm. they offered good insurance. So it's like a restaurant where like you could actually live like a stable like healthy lifestyle in an yeah. industry that promotes the opposite usually like yeah. usually it's like you know, setting you up for volatility. Um, deep exploitation yeah um and the food you know it was vegan food but it wasn't you know consistent with what we're doing now you know almost all the menu it's like it's they were sourcing a lot of local stuff they Mm. were using local organic tempeh and organic tofu and like mainly vegetables and making like simple food like you know, like a really tasty, like tempeh Reuben, and they baked their own bread and they had sauerkraut that was fermented locally from the brinery. shout out. And, um, you know, it it wasn't trying to be something fancy or anything like that. And Mm -hmm. I mean, fancy restaurants, even though I've worked in them and admire them, aren't really what stimulates me. Mm. Um, That was very shaping. At the same time I was cooking at the lunchroom, I started working on a farm. Mm It's a small organic vegetable farm, biodynamic farm. Hmm. And I was the only employee there. It was ran by this man named Tim Redmond. Mm -hmm. And so in the morning I would be up at like five 36 and I would go to Tim's. I would go to skinny farm. It was called skinny farm Asio. And I would work for like, you know, eight hours in the morning on the, on the vegetable farm and then I would go to class and then I would cook in the evening. Hmm. Um, I was very heavily influenced by Tim too. And you know, this is a huge coincidence. Tim worked in CPG, natural foods, for about 50 years. Hmm. He founded a company called Eden Foods, Hmm. which is like one of the original big organic food companies. Mm -hmm. And he was the person that popularized soy milk in the US. Hmm. Um, He had several successful ventures outside of that. And he co-founded Eden, which actually started as a, I think it was the first organic um, natural foods co-op in the Midwest. This was like way back, you know? I mean, he's old now. No offense. He's like, you know, <laughs> 76 or something. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: I think any nobody can debate that's old. Right.
1: Yeah. Um. <laughs> But I got to work, you know, right under him. And at the time, like he told me all about his, na- like he would tell little stories here and there about the, the natural foods experience. But, you yeah. know, I was there to learn from him about small scale, you know, organic ag. Yeah. And I was very like kind of one-on-one conversationally and then work, working directly with him. Mm-hmm. Um. So I saw this you know, the side of it with like this more kind of vegetable forward, plant forward, vegan food. I was working on this farm, kind of seeing things from seed to harvest. Mm-hmm. And then I applied to Blue Hill at Stone Barns. um, And they invited me out for, it's called staging or trailing. And mm-hmm. that went well. I flew out to New York and did that for a few days and, they actually treated me to a meal at the restaurant and that blew my fucking mind. Cause it was like 25 courses of like just the most interesting, insane, like awesome, delicious food, kind of at the intersection of like flavor nutrition and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting the job. I graduated from Michigan. And like a few days later I bought my mom's um, Honda Odyssey off of her you know, took all the seats out besides the front one, packed everything I owned, drove to New York. Mm-hmm. And then I started working there and, you know, I, <laughs> that was insane. Mm. That was insane. I mean, I was working, we would have like a couple days off a month maybe. Mm. And I remember like when I got there, like, <laughs> I knew it was going to be intense. I had worked in kitchens before, but this is fine dining. You know, you're working with some of the most talented people in the world mm-hmm. and it's New York mm-hmm. and New York restaurants are, are, you know, known to be cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that job kicked my ass. I uh, it was a very polar experience. I would say it was very exciting. I learned so much, you know, you're thrown in the deep end. You, you, you become aware of being capable of doing things you didn't think you were. Mm -hmm. Um, But it certainly came at a cost of, I kind of put my health on the back burner for a while, but it was such a, you know, it was such an immersive education because the restaurants on a farm and this farm stone barn center, um, they're growing everything. They have livestock. They're, you know, they're really using all of the best practices Mm -hmm. and, the restaurants working hand in hand with them mm. and uh you know a big component of, of Blue Hill which is really cool is like they really educate the cooks there. I mean we had meetings almost every day with the farmers and mm. the the cooks had farm chores but we had to go work on the farm every week and things like that and like Dan Barber, the chef there was pretty good about There were lots of opportunities for like field trips to go to some of the other local farms that the restaurant worked with and um, really see food from that side. Mm. Um,
0: So it's kind of creating missionaries almost.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly like (laughs) if you work there, you end up drinking the Kool-Aid. But I think Mm. it's the right Kool-Aid in a lot of ways. Maybe not so much in the, you know, the intensity and the culture because it was um, a bit unhinged. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. But in terms of, you know, kind of the, the aim of what they were going for, I think, uh, really took a lot of my past experiences and was like, refined them and shaped them. Mm. And then the job itself was like that level of intensity and responsibility Mm -hmm. and rigor, I think shaped me in a way that was like. You know, it's like when you do like, I don't know if you've ever done like some insane workout program. And then you're like, wow, like I could really push myself this far. Sure. I mean, shit, if you don't do it right, though, and you do it too much, you're going to get injured. And maybe that happened to me. But like, you see what you're capable of, you know? And um, anyway, I I worked there for about a year and then I moved to Chicago. The plan was, uh, you know, my brother lived here. I wanted to get out of New York. I was burnt out. Mm -hmm. Um, my partner at the time was living here. My brother lived here. A bunch of my friends, you know, Kevin lived here and, um, my plan was to work at a restaurant called Smith downtown. They do Mm -hmm. farm to table food. I Mm -hmm. had a connection there. They have two Michelin stars as well. Mm -hmm. Um, very shortly after I moved here, you know, I was taking a little stress break and COVID hit. Mm -hmm. So It was a strange time. I mean, to be transparent, I was not, my mental health was not good. You know, I came off Mm -hmm. of being in New York and being like, not having to face myself for a long time because all Mm -hmm. I faced was work and Mm -hmm. my responsibilities there. And Mm you get so used to the stress and the intensity and like that's where your brain is and then the stimuli goes away but then your brain's still there and you're like what the fuck just happened to me yeah you know yeah um but i came here and and then covid hit and it was like like everyone in the world it's like what the fuck do i do and mm-hmm. um <laughs> i um i was fortunate enough to get like the covid relief unemployment support mm. which was awesome. Mm. And like a lot of cooks I know and people that worked in the restaurant industry it's like for the first time in you know maybe years or ever you have an income and you have time. Mm. And I had never like it just had never been like that. Mm-hmm. So I got to you know and like you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. So like it's like let's go to the grocery store and then just fuck around at home. It's like I was got addicted to making sourdough bread. I was getting all my flour from Janie's mill and Kevin was doing it too. We were pumping out bread, like mad at here. There's flour everywhere. And like, um, I went back to Ann Arbor, uh, and was living with my parents for that summer and kind of helping them out and they have a little more space and it was better. It was more mm-hmm. healthy than being in the city. Mm-hmm. Started a big garden there. I was growing all sorts of stuff and, mm-hmm. um, cooking a ton and the beet jerky thing, just was like a playful thing that came out of that. Mm. So I was just screwing around with it. People started sharing it with some people. Mm. Friends liked it. You know, Mm -hmm. it wasn't serious. It was Mm -hmm. just like, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was applying to some jobs. I was trying to get a job at food tank for a while and still would love to do that by the way. Um, (laughs) Interview me food tank. Shout out food tank. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But no, I started, people were like, oh, this is good. And um, so then it was around Thanksgiving of 2020 Mm. and I had been uh, tinkering with the recipe a little bit. It was still, again, nothing super serious, but I called Tim Redman, the guy, the farmer, and I called him because I was just going to tell him, like, hey, I'm going to be in Ann Arbor. I've been quarantining. Mm. Uh, I'd love to see you, like, from a social distance or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was funny enough because at this point I didn't even have a dehydrator for r and I was using the oven, and you can mm-hmm. do that, by the way. You put your oven at, like, 170 and just rotate it a lot of works. And um, he, I was on the phone with him, and then the beet jerky was – and I didn't even connect the dots, but then I was – I was like, yo, like, look at this. And we're on FaceTime and I'm mm-hmm. like, this is beet jerky. And he's like, what? Beet jerky. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, like I'll bring you some. So mm-hmm. I I packed some up. I went to Whole Foods. I got on the shelf. There was like a mushroom one, a coconut one, and like a mm-hmm. soy jerky one. Mm-hmm. And then I had my stuff in like a Ziploc bag with like Sharpie writing on it that was all smudged. <laughs> and I bring it to his house. And... Um, I didn't even cognitively, like, mm. I didn't even consciously recognize that, like, what I was doing was, like, I was essentially pitching him a new product. Yeah, yeah. It was just, like, I was excited about it, and, like, you know, I didn't have much else going on. Yeah. So I get there, and, like, you know, we're just, like, shooting the shit, catching up, because Tim is a, he's a cool, funny dude, mm. and... um I talk about the beet jerky thing, and I have him try all the other ones, and then I have him try mine, and I remember him sitting there. We're sitting in the barn. It's, you know, a November cold night, and we have, like, our coats on. It's, like, 40 degrees in there, and he's, like, eating it. and <laughs> Trying like, to social distance. and Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, like, he's eating it, and, like, he's just kind of thinking, and, like, mm. And then eventually he like looks up and he's like, this is a really good idea. Mm. And then we start talking, we end up talking for like an hour and like, you know, mm. I'm going on like my weird rants like I am mm-hmm. right now. And mm-hmm. he's like, eventually he's like, you should pursue this. And if you want, I will help you, mm. you know, cause he's, you know, he had 50 years of pretty successful entrepreneurship under his belt in the natural food space, which, you know, overlapped a ton with what I was doing. Yeah. And I was like, fuck it. Like, yeah, let's do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I remember driving home from his house and he was excited and I was excited because it was like, it was validation, you know, from somebody experienced. It's like, you don't, Mm. Tim's not the kind of guy that, that, you know, will gas you up. And he's still not that kind of guy.
0: You need those people.
1: Yeah. And, and he believed in me and he saw value in me and he, he, in what I was thinking and and I knew like he. I worked for him, so I think he knew I I had the the drive and the interest. Yeah. And from then on it was like, okay, I like let's develop this product. And that was probably the easiest thing I've done Mm. of everything I've done. (laughs) To be honest. Mm -hmm. Like I think developing products is not that challenging for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, again, this is like something in my advantage because I want to keep it simple and I think I have a unique take on it. Yeah. But it's like I don't have to I'm not playing around with formulas that involve like, you know, hard science, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's experiential. And I think most innovation, good innovation, a big part of it needs to be playful at the beginning. Yeah.
0: And you're not Um, trying to trick anybody. Right.
1: Right. So I developed the product pretty quickly. I was like, you know, just doing renditions. I would have like. Fifty beats. Kevin probably still is. I know he's still annoyed with me and all the entrepreneurial <laughs> bullshit going on. I don't have fucking boxes stacked to the ceiling in here still. Yeah. So yeah, I appreciate his patience with that. But no, I mean, I I developed the product pretty fast. I knew the flavors we wanted to use. I'm sure like little things changed here and there, mm-hmm. but um, getting it to scale, I was overly ambitious. Mm. I rented a commercial kitchen on the West side of town. And I was mm. like, okay, like spring, summer, we're going to launch this thing. We're going to launch a website. We're going to do retail. We're going to do farmer's markets. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I bought 40 hydrators that are like, quote, commercial. Mm. Um, very misled by who sold those to me. <laughs> um, rented a kitchen. It was about 45 minutes away. And I th- I was like, oh, I can make a couple hundred bags a day. Yeah. That was so Far off. Um, (laughs) We could hardly make, we could hardly, like, I mean, we were making like like 30, 40 bags a day. And then we'd go to the farmer's market on Saturday and sell 200 and sell out. And it's like, okay, well, there's nowhere else we can do this. (laughs) I was selling to a couple co-ops and the product was moving well. People loved it at the farmer's market, but it was fucking psycho. I mean, I was spending like 18 hours a day in this windowless kitchen, Mm. driving 45 minutes each way, Mm -hmm. you know, And then like when I wasn't there, it was like, I was picking up beats and it was just, it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. and Right back into
0: that overhyped kitchen environment. Oh yeah. And it was, it was, it was pretty
1: triggering in that way. Cause it was like when things don't go as planned, when things are failing, I have, you know, I have some conditioning of like, well, sound the alarm, you know, rattle your brain. And every day it was like, okay, well I, We'd figure out how to make some product, but it was always like, when you know something's not efficient and mm. you know something not, is not really working,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it'd be like these dehydrators, they wouldn't dry things evenly at all. So like you'd, there's like, you know, 30 trays in them and you'd like go tray by tray and like pick, hand pick mm. individual pieces out when they were done and then put them back. And like, mm-hmm. sometimes you'd, they'd go over and they'd be too hard. And it was just like, it was crazy. It was madness, but. Mm. I guess, and it it didn't make any sense from like an economic standpoint, like we were I mean on the hour, it made no sense mm-hmm. and but what we did learn was that it was a product that had demand that people liked mm-hmm. that um you know that I think had value and it was new, yeah, and I started getting at the farmers' market, I got approached by a couple different people, you know that were like. This is amazing, like where can I buy this, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Are you taking investment, things like that? Mm. And I met a few angel investors that believed in me and ended up putting money into it and I met a few more. And um, that whole time when I was at the kitchen and making it, a friend of mine, Aaron Brodkey, was working at a venture capital firm called mm-hmm. Big Idea Ventures. And mm-hmm. he was one of the first people I ever shared beat jerky with. He moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the big idea, Ven- the job was remote in Big Idea Ventures in New York. It, it, I think it still is like the most active like alternative protein accelerator and VC in the world.
0: Okay,
1: So he was working with brands at my stage or like that didn't even have a product yet. Um, and within their accelerator program and like identifying companies that they would invest in and really understanding the business from like, a you know, more like marketing, you know, financial strategic, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. kind of growth trajectory, like a bit more of like the, the, the more like refined and educated scope of, of how this all happens. Yeah. And he was giving me advice on the side throughout all of it. Um, At that scale and he saw, and you know, the, the, the interest from consumers and he saw the, the people, um, that wanted to put money into it and stuff. Mm. And that fall, I, so the summer went on, we had this shit show of like making products sometimes and not having it and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But we got the data that people liked it at the market and we got the data that it moved off the shelf at some stores Mm -hmm. and then. That fall, I was like, okay, well, with Aaron's advice too, Aaron was the one that kept telling me, like, dude, you need to, like, figure out how to scale this. Like, it's not worth your time to just be slicing beats with Mm -hmm. your head down, you Mm -hmm. know. And, Mm. you know, he recommended to me to, to, you know, make a pitch deck and, like, find a co-founder and all this Mm. kind of stuff. So I started interviewing people for co-founder jobs. I, like, posted online. I interviewed a bunch of people. And I kept trying to poach him. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, he applied, <laughs> and he like did the exercise that I think my brother helped me put together. Mm. Uh, thank you for that, Julian. And um, after some negotiation and like convincing, mm. I got him to quit his job. Mm. I mean, he quit his job. wasn't yeah. all me, but yeah. but I saw the, like, okay, here is this person that knows all the shit I don't. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah, and he's really driven and he's focused and he's hungry and mm-hmm. like we share that. Mm-hmm. So he came on board in 2020, what is it? 2022 in January, we, you know, f- formalized the partnership mm-hmm. and, um, we kind of divided the work, you know, it's like, okay, well, he's like finance marketing strategy, you know, kind of co-tackle sales I do product development operations, you know, and then, I mean, we've all, we have our hands in everything, but mm. it was like, let's raise money and find a co-packer. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I knew from my experience, like we can't scale this in house, no way. Mm-hmm. And even if you do, you know, it's like, it's a kind of a, it's a risky game to play. Cause if you invest a hundred K capital towards production, say things go well, where well, you're going to outgrow it, mm-hmm. you know? And then what do you do all that equipment's worth like less than half of what it was Mm -hmm. and what do you do with it? Like, do you keep, it just doesn't make sense. So Mm -hmm. it was pretty stressful because we formulated a partnership and we raised money from angels and then supplemented by some friends and family. Mm -hmm. Um, We had no co-packer. We had no supply chain. We had a product. We had no sales lined up or anything. So Aaron and I were like, you know, it's just like, and again, like I kind of love the chaos. It's like entrepreneurship and working in a kitchen, share that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, he was grinding all the time, setting up the infrastructure to make, you know, make this work from like everything back end administrative, you know, strategy, how we're going to go to market, all that. Mm. And then I was like figuring out supply chain and manufacturing Mm -hmm. and, you know, him and I both were just working like dogs. I would, I've, I would spend 50 hours a week just cold calling manufacturers Mm. and nobody wants to talk to you. You're like, Hey, I have this product that has never been made before and the process is unique and we have no sales lined up and you don't know who the fuck I am. Yeah. And it's organic and, um, you don't mm-hmm. have a certification, but you should get one to make our product. <laughs> and like, you, you know, people just be like, you know, once you get a PO for like regional sales, like call me back and yeah. it's like okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and yeah. we finally, <laughs> I've called, I've talked to over 500 commands in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I got like one to say yes. Mm-hmm. Finally did a, did a trial run over the summer last June, figured mm-hmm. out we can make it. Mm-hmm. With a ton of delays and whatnot, we finally did our first run in November. We made 16,000 units, which was very ballsy, and I was advised against not producing so much, but fuck it. So we did it. It went well. We got into Whole Foods Accelerator. You know Mm -hmm. That was huge. That was huge. I should Mm -hmm. talk about that. Aaron was the one that found that and applied to it. Um, Mm -hmm. We went through tons of interviews and stuff. It's this new program where they take one – they're about to – uh, like they're I think they're selecting or taking applications right now for their second cohort, but mm. their first cohort was last year. And they have 10 regions of stores in the country. They took one brand from every region.
0: Mm. Hyper and, local. Well, not yeah, hyper,
1: but local. And the, the 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 aim of the program is like they were identifying brands that they think would be promising Whole Foods brands and mm. collaborating with whoever gets chosen for each reason, region to represent and work on being a successful whole foods brand Okay. and over 500 brands applied in the Midwest and we were finalists top three. And then we had to like shoot a video, um, like pitch thing. And it was great timing cause we, him, Aaron and I went back to, to Ann Arbor to do this thing called Zing train, which is like a, mm-hmm. it's like a, um, ethical business, uh, workshop. Okay. And, uh, Yeah, it's through Zingerman's. I don't know if you've heard of Zingerman's. I have not. They're a really cool organization. Um, Anyway, but we were in Ann Arbor and like they said, Whole Foods said like we're not going to discriminate based on like setting or judge you based on like the setting you shoot it and stuff. But it was just such a great opportunity because we went to Tim's farm and like shot it in a hoop Mm -hmm. house and made it like super cool, which I think definitely like. Maybe it was like a subconscious advantage, Yeah, you can't take that discrimination out. I feel like, (laughs) like, yeah, yeah, but no, we got in and like that accelerator program ran from the end of the summer through the fall. And then we did our run, which was, oh my God, the first run was just insane. (laughs) We got to this facility, me and Linda Baggio, my advisor for Mm. um, like QA and production. And we were expecting there to be like 10 to 12 laborers there mm. because these beets we were processing 10,000 pounds of beets. Um, okay. the beets need to go on trays and they need to be hand placed on trays and they can't overlap one another or else they won't dry evenly. Mm-hmm. We show up to the facility and we knew it was going to take all day, but we show up to the facility and there's three people there. Hmm. And Linda and I immediately were like, okay, you know, it was like five in the morning and we're like, okay, like, I don't think this is going to get done. Yeah. So her and I both end up, you know, becoming workers on the line and we trade. Eventually I just like forced Linda to like go home because you know, she did not sign up for that, but I was up for 48 hours straight doing that. Mm. Um, and we ended up getting it done. But, you know, I had a flight to catch, and we have a budget. And,
0: and this was all, like, under a contract with Whole Foods yeah. that you needed to have this done by this time.
1: Kind of, yeah. Like, they were expecting us to launch into Illinois stores. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, when you're producing f- – There's so much risk involved in producing food, but especially stuff that's like not super processed because there's just higher chances of spoilage and things like that. So, I mean, there's like $60,000 on the line and it all fucking falls on me. And yeah, it was just insane. I was up for 48 hours straight and we got the job done. We did it. We produced over 60,000 units Hmm. and um, hit the market. In early February, we got into all the, was it February? I don't even know. Something like that. <laughs> into the whole food stores yeah. in Illinois. And the sales have been good and we're selling, you know, and, and some other independents and things like that. The product's moving well. We're selling to you guys mm-hmm. and um, doing tons of demos and stuff now. But um, it's uh, it's kind of crazy.
0: Yeah. 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 For brief context, uh, you guys as Village Farm Stand, I'm working over there part time. um, And they currently carry Theo's beet jerky in all three flavors. If you want to catch us on Dempster off the uh, train line in Evanston, we're up there. But go buy it. um, Go get it. And it is, it's remarkably good. Like I really, I had no experience with beets before tasting it, really. I don't think I've, maybe I've had like beets in a salad. Right. But I didn't know what to expect. And I ate it after that. networking event sitting there like i was sitting at home trying to do emails after the event and i just like opened the bag up and i ate one and then before you know it the bag was empty and i was like well shit i guess i like that because that was fucking good
1: um well you just ate a big ass beet, yeah and it's like no nah, okay i guess i like beets maybe all, when right. they're
0: diced when they have sea salt and cracked pepper on them or when mm-hmm. they're flavored with uh, sesame ginger teriyaki right um but i mean so that's and I think what stands out to me in that story, and this is probably a lot of, um, thank you. This tea is remarkable as well. Theo knows good tasting things. Everything I give you will be good. The man has taste. Um, I think one of the it's people underestimate how much effort I think goes into getting any sort of business off the ground, but especially food and beverage and, I know people working in the corporate world that hear the concept of doing a ten-hour day and start getting uncomfortable. You know, let alone forty-eight hours just to make the shit happen. And it's like, I don't know that you can replace the intensity required for certain aspects of the the business of getting a business off the ground. Um, it's just, it's, it's remarkable the difference in. To your point, and maybe maybe those early experiences are what makes that possible for you. It's like you already found out that you can do some ridiculous shit with your body going through all the other things, and that was on somebody else's dollar. So when yeah. it comes to like now it's your responsibility, right. it's like, well, I already have that. I just need to put it back into action. But you can't do that forever, right? No, you so can't. So it's like you, you have can't. to figure out ways. to If you have to do that, you have to then get smarter about never having to face that right.
1: again. I mean, yeah. Okay, like a lot of unfiltered thoughts on that. I think like, (laughs) you know, I have thrown myself into the fire a lot before this. Mm -hmm. And I kind of need that. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a short attention span. Mm -hmm. I can't, I'm not good at sitting down and doing like one like logical task. Mm -hmm. That's just not how my brain works. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thank God, you know, Aaron's the yin to my yang or whatever they say. Because like he is so our brains are so different and it works out well. Yeah. Um, And just to give, I can't give him enough credit because this, this would have crashed and burned without Aaron for sure. But Mm. um, I think uh, you get used to being uncomfortable in kitchens and that Mm. becomes the norm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of uncertainty when you're working in a kitchen and you get used to this idea of like, Oh, well, I can't do this and that because of work and things like that. And like, mm. I think what, the deeper you get into it, it, you, you, you just, you also get comfortable with working really hard for, and not making any money. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And something I just, I, I've always had this dream of like, I used to listen to like how I built this, like, mm. um, you know, when I was first starting this just to get the, to keep the dream alive. And yeah. They always ask the founders at the end of the the thing, like what percentage of this comes down to your hard work and what percentage it comes down to luck. And something I've always wanted to go on that show just to answer that question because I wanted to be like, well, yes, you have to work hard. and, But there's a lot of luck involved in this. And what I've always wanted to share with people is like, you know, the blue collar workforce, and I can only really speak to the restaurant workforce because I've seen it and I've Mm -hmm. been into it and I know those people. Um, This job is nothing compared to what I used to do. Mm. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. And all those people that work in restaurants, they get no respect in society. They're not seen. They don't have a voice and they keep their heads down and they work really fucking hard Mm. and they don't get shit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this idea that because entrepreneurship is challenging, that like you should be like praised as you're doing something, you know, sacred. It's like, no, people are working their asses off every day and they don't get shit for it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just want to share that to keep in mind, like humble yourselves, entrepreneurs or whatever job you have, if you're white collar whatever, Mm -hmm. because like at the end of the day, it's like there's always somebody working harder than you, you know, um, I think Aaron and I are trying really hard, you know, another thing that's great about our partnership is like, we support one another, Mm -hmm. you know, we have, I've known him since middle school. Mm -hmm. Um, we went to high school together. We went to college together. He studied sustainability, sustainable food systems at university of Michigan too. Mm. And, um, him and I are constantly trying to, as much as we are like obsessively like driven to make this happen. Yeah. We're also encouraging one another to be nice to ourselves, you know, to like, you should take a breather, you know, this afternoon, this kind of a thing. And it's like, we're in, we're in this culture and milieu of like, especially once you start having other people's money involved and things like that, where it's like this very unexamined and unthoughtful viewpoint of work that like you get distilled down to being a It's all about your productivity, you know, and it reminds Mm. me of kitchen culture a little bit where it's like, let's deny everything human about you, even though you're a human and like, let's make it all about just Mm. unconditionally like dying on work. And it's like, I've had to tell some people that have like, you know, out of their own fear have like constantly given me that message. It's like, you don't need to tell me that. Like I'm working hard. Trust me. Like, I've been working hard since I was a teenager and I've never gotten shit for it. Yeah. And I've been doing this for almost three years now and I still haven't really gotten shit for it. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm, you don't need to worry about that. You know, tell me if you should, if you're going to tell me anything, like tell me to relax a little bit because Mm. again, the other thing like Aaron and I always talk about is like, this is a, this is a, this is a marathon, you know, and it feels like a sprint a lot and you do have to sprint and spurts, but like, we need to stay healthy, you know, burnout is real. I've burned out so many times in my life and like, Mm -hmm. it's real, you know? So I guess I share all this just because I wish, I wish there was more, there was more, you know, conversation and encouragement around um, balance. Yeah. And you can't always get it, but, I mean, you go on LinkedIn, for example, it's just toxic. It's like everybody's just saying how they do a bazillion sacrifices, and I'm sure like half of them aren't even true. But you know, it's like, you know, this is what I do to succeed. And it's like, okay, like maybe you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. Like yeah. What, At was, what cost? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's like, oh, I saw a post once. It was like, you know, I've like I've had like three failed relationships because of this work and that's how much I care about. It's like, are you really proud of that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah, that's not something you should be bragging about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciate that perspective. Yeah. And yeah, it's, um, well the other thing I keep on hearing is the people that are really able to find that balance, they have a partner in it. Oh, yeah. You have if it's to. not a relationship partner and a business partner. It's like they have some somebody that is right. building a support structure with yep. them and matching the intensity yep. at a healthy level. Right. Because like if you have two people that are prone to burnout, you right. can watch for the other
1: person right. better than
0: you can watch for yourself. And I think it's
1: often like the people that are prone to burnout are the ones that there's that emotional attachment to it mm-hmm. because the experience gets amplified like, you know, tenfold. Um, but it's a conscious effort, like every day, like it's like, I love working out and stuff like that, but there's this voice in my head that's always telling me like, no, 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 like don't Mm. do that. And it's a constant thing where it's like, no, like it is productive to take care of yourself, you know? Yeah. So I I need that. I need that. And, and self-care is not just about eating well and going to the gym. Self-care is about Mm. doing social stuff. Mm -hmm. Self-care is about you know, indulging in entertainment, Mm -hmm. you know, it's about living your life. Mm -hmm. So just finding ways to do that. It's just so important. And I just, the culture right now, it's just Aaron and I, we're going to bring on a few people for green, green city market and Logan square farmers market, which we'll be at every weekend starting Mm -hmm. in a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. But you know, the culture starts with with him and I, and I think this thing is going to keep growing and we'll have a, a team that we work with someday. And like, I have been in so many toxic work cultures Mm -hmm. that have been very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want to bring that on anybody, Yeah, you know, and I don't want to feed into that. I don't want to, um, you know, transfer what, how I've been treated onto somebody else Mm. in some fear driven way, which I think often, you know, These chefs, for example, they project their stress and their own trauma on everybody else. It's like the same thing, like the quality of the products and the integrity of, you know, all that. It's like I'm I'm not going to do that to anybody. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to do that to anybody. Yeah. So.
0: Well, I definitely appreciate that you are one of the people. Self-aware enough to take that kind of, uh, that step in leadership and making the change where you, where you now have control, you know, it's, it's really easy to say, well, I suffered through this, so you have to suffer through it (laughs) too. And that's almost like, that's the stereotypical chef thing is right. It is. I went through terrible chefs and you'll deal with my (laughs) shit too. It's like everything's burnt into their ego. Um, Really so yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that. There are so many things we haven't had a chance to talk to talk about. I think we might have to do a second episode on this one. I can um, talk forever, man. I, and like, honestly, <laughs> that there was a point in there where you like knocked out question after question, easiest interview I may ever have, because it was like, well, this is my follow up. Oh, there he goes. This is my follow up. Oh, there he goes. We did it. Fucking nailed it. Um, um, and it's just excellent stories. So I really yeah. appreciate you sharing. Um, before we jump out. Where can people find you? Is there anything you working, you are working on that you want people to know about? Any last final words for the
1: show? Yeah. So we are in um, every Whole Foods in Illinois. There's 26 stores. We're usually in the functional snack section near the kale chips um, and the dried fruit and stuff like that. Some places we're on, near the jerky, the meat uh, jerky. Um, find us at Andalay Market. In Uptown, I mean, sorry, in Andersonville, TheosPlantBase.com, Amazon. Please come to the farmers market if you're in Chicago, Um, Green City Market, Lincoln Park Saturdays, Logan Square Farmers Market on Sundays, Mm. and come say hi to me. I would love to talk to you about anything and everything. Um, It just it's a privilege to, and then lastly, we're going to be in every whole foods in the Midwest, um, Mm. in May. That's huge. So, I mean, it's a privilege to have a space to talk. You know, I, I have a lot to say. Um, and even if just, it resonates with a few people that's meaningful. So I really appreciate you making this happen. And, um, I am working on some new products that we would mm. hope to get out in twenty twenty four. Oh yeah, or sorry, before twenty twenty four. So keep a lookout for that. Yeah. So, and um, I encourage everybody to eat real food.
0: Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. If you're not in the one of those farmer market regions, just go to a farmer's market because you get to meet the right. people that are growing the shit that you end exactly. up eating. Exactly. Um, which the human connections are almost better than the flavor of the food you get, but the flavor of the food is still even better than anything you can get at a supermarket. Yeah.
1: And the last thing I'll add is I would rather you, you could buy like a six pack on our website. It's like 40 something dollars. Mm -hmm. I would rather you spend all that money at your local farmer's market, supporting Mm -hmm. local organic agriculture. So Mm -hmm. seriously, go to your farmer's market. Don't buy our stuff. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> best salesman in history yeah right there we there. go but no i appreciate <laughs> right on. it man yeah man yeah. really appreciate your time as well it's been excellent thanks for tuning in we'll catch you on the next one